drive you under the bus. Floor is yours, Henrik. Well, god damn it, I'm positively rosebud here. <laughs> uh, that went actually weird <laughs> innuendos right off the gate. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, so Today's episode, in a, in a desperate attempt to make film podcasting great again, we are actually touching Donald Trump's favorite movie. <laughs> you sure do know how to pick them. I must <laughs> hand it to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, but what is a movie podcast without reviewing Citizen Kane? Uh, I think that's not going to work in the long run. Uh, yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully... We don't have any listeners in the U.S. at the moment, <laughs> because <laughs> if we do, it was nice to know you. <laughs> no hard well, feelings. We'll be fine. We'll be moving into Hong Kong next time. <laughs> yeah, we can alienate also them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you're a new listener of this podcast, The Flick Lab is a film podcast. Where a media assistant and Henrik, a future master of arts, try to tackle the most challenging movies apparently that we can ever pick. So, yeah, master of arts. Is it a master of arts or are you going to be the 21st century film prodigy a la Orson Welles or the new Seventh Wonder at Louvre Museum or, I don't know, a handbag designer on Fifth Avenue? Or... <laughs> I, I, I'm most likely being the head job designer in, the, <laughs> in that one dark alley. Well, I can totally grant it to you because, you know, it's not entirely clear to me what it entails being the master of arts. As, you know, art in fact is in the eye of the beholder. And I did not particularly like my art lessons because, <laughs> to be completely honest, there is no rhyme or reason for art. What is art? It's anything and everything that you depict as being art. And therefore, being the master of arts is indeed, it kind of lacks solid boundaries of definition. I'm not exactly sure what Henrik would like to pursue in reality, but looks like only the sky is the limit. <laughs> sky or insanity? <laughs> You know, to, to give some clarification, I'm specializing in audiovisual media. Yeah. So, yeah, in Finland, the Master of Arts is, is a huge, extremely large umbrella term that withholds many of different kind of specializations. My specialization, will I ever actually get my degree, would be audiovisual media, so... Camera work, producing, web design, game design, pretty much everything that you can do by your head except 
package design and clothing. Yeah. Well, still quite fast subjects. It, it is. It is uh, to say to say what we are supposed to do after graduation as our, our job for the rest of our lives. Nobody appears to have the faintest idea. <laughs> I honestly feel like that as well. A kind of supposedly specialized in camera work. In the end, you have only so much time to touch certain topics and the best way to learn is to be in the business. That it is. Can't actually argue with you on that. Yeah. But today we'll be looking at Spy Kids 2, Island of Lost Dreams from 2002. This is a sequel to the very famous original Spy Kids and it's uh, directed by Robert Rodriguez. Are you a big fan? I I like more, uh, you know, the part three. Like I I think the characters were most well defined and the idea was, was even more kind of a complete. Defined, you know. Is that saying that they got more definition when they grew older? Well, at least they got, you know, 3D behind them, backing on that one. <laughs> but yeah, you know, if nothing else, in, in part three, they have Sylvester Stallone backing the film as the, you know, nefarious toy maker. <laughs> so if nothing else, part three is completely expendable. Cringe! <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that is the high-quality jokes you can expect from a master of arts. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, it made cinematic history and... Okay, well, in reality we are still going to try to look for to review Citizen Kane tonight. One way or the other. <laughs> is it too late to just switch it to Spice Kids 2? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I might as well go to sleep. <laughs> but let's try. It's been a rough day, but I'm getting to it. And this has been a rough movie. Yeah, indeed. What is this movie about, Henrik? My take on this is that it's about a media tycoon, Baron, uh, a rich news Baron uttering his last words. Rosebud. And there is this reporter, Jerry Thompson, and he's tasked to find out what it means. That's the crux. To me, this is a film about making fascism a great again. This movie is from those times when you were either for democracy or you were a fascist. Nothing in between. No, 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 Gary. This, this was not made on on the modern times. <laughs> like, like, this is old classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why did we choose it? <laughs> I, 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 I love the notion, we. <laughs> it says so in my notes. Well? I guess you're right, you know. This is, once again, a film that, I guess, every film podcast, which works on as broad scale as we do, is not being tied into one specific genre has to actually go through Citizen Kane at some point. Yeah, it's only fair to look at, if nothing else, than at least one movie from Wells and all the great ones, in my opinion. Then we can move on to our 
regularly scheduled once again, like shitty horror movies about cats killing the entire boat crew. I'm still waiting that we actually do that. What's uninvited? God damn, you know even that movie. Yeah, yeah, oh, of course, of, of course. Who could not know the movie where cat pukes out another cat and that how, another cat is the killer? How do you know this? It's <laughs> it's not even available on DVD. And I, I was sure on one horror forum that nobody would ever know this title when they were asking for titles of horror movies that nobody has ever seen. And I said, uninvited. And immediately there's some woman saying, I saw it on VHS or something, and now it's on Amazon. Okay, well, that's news to me. Yeah, it's actually a movie that I saw when my, again, very infamous grandmother at this point rented it for us and we watched it back in 90s, when I was like 10 years old. Well, that is raising up well done, so to speak. <laughs> uh, other... Amazing classics of those times include also something like Rawhead Rex. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that, but pure classic. The famous Slok era. Oh, basically everything. <laughs> well, I think Citizen Kane is a natural continuation from Apocalypse Now. I'm dreading even pronouncing that name at this point. But yeah, we did that and... This film has a certain connection with Orson Welles because Orson Welles was supposed to adapt uh, the book Heart of Darkness first to the silver screen, but uh, there was some quite interesting idea for this Orson Welles version. It was supposed to be shot only from first-person perspective through the eyes of Orson Welles playing the main character, but it apparently was going to be 50 thousand dollars too expensive so they scrapped it and he was quite disappointed about the fact and instead of this project in fact they jumped into Citizen Kane the third offer that he had for the studio and uh, they accepted Citizen Kane well it's kind of easy to see why they would be tempted with Citizen Kane yeah script wise this could perhaps be considered as the easiest project for Wells and, and for the studio. Now, simply talking on how the film would look on paper. Yeah, easy choice at the time. It was current. What was that and is still a very personal drama. Yeah. Focusing on the titular character of Kane. There were two screenwriters, of course, Orson Welles, and Herman Mankiewicz. They both wrote their own versions of the screenplay. They used to have a lot of arguments, and finally they settled into their own locations and did two scripts, and then Wells was free, because he had the creative freedom 100%. He was able to just take the script of Mankiewicz and just pick the favorite parts of that script, and then do the final script. There's been a bunch of arguments around the years saying that Orson Welles was a horrible human being for kind of using Mankiewicz and in the first place his name was not even supposed to be in the movie because Mankiewicz was... He was hired in as a so-called script doctor. But interesting though that Mankiewicz would later on 
go and complain about this, that his name would not be in, in the movie. He should have known that from the get-go, if he was hired only as a so-called script doctor. And he arguably decided to be without the credit himself. Or maybe he was being cheated in some way. Hard to say. But he raised a huge issue with this and complained and made several threats, including to go to the press to go play about it. But the issue was solved and then RKO agreed to add his name. And finally it was settled so that he actually comes as the first name of the screenwriters. Even though there was a guy who studied who actually was the main writer of the final script. And it may not come as a surprise that at the end of the day, Orson Welles was the one that wrote the considerable amount of the script. All right. What do you want to talk about next? William Randolph Hearst? Yeah. William Randolph Hearst is a real-life media tycoon or like a millionaire. Parts of his character is being added to this fictionalized character, the Citizen Kane. So William Randolph Hearst is the kind of the main basis of this story. And the idea of getting Hearst into this whole story as the integral part is coming from Mankiewicz again. Because Mankiewicz happened to be in the social circles of William Randolph Hearst, but was then, due to some schism, kicked out of those circles and he became to hate Hearst, and hence this movie. And I can totally see why Hearst would see this as an issue, like something aggressive against him. But at the end of the day, I would agree with Kane, Horson Wells as well, that this was kind of a fusion character, fusion character of several egotistical and... Uh, rich kind of a tycoon type of character. That he is. He's also, at least for my understanding, partly also purely fictional. So it's not just a, a combination of different tycoons, but combination of different tycoons and pure fiction. And not so much picture-perfect copy of Hearst. Yeah. yeah, one could almost make the argument that the whole cane as a figurement of Hearst Angle would not even have risen so prominently up had Hearst himself not gotten a fit and went to such lengths to prevent the film from being released. There is also interesting that they are depicting the death of the tycoon in this film during still the living and breathing Hearst. So I can understand why he would raise a fuss but to go to the lengths that he did, he tried to threaten, tried to hire somebody to burn all the film negatives and copies made out of Citizen Kane before the initial release. <laughs> but he finally managed to limit the screening of Citizen Kane. And unfortunately, the movie was not so successful at the box office, was not able to get back the sum of money that was used on it was unable to get its budget back. But later in the 50s, I believe in 1956, this movie was re-released in the US theaters and was kind of taken... Another look was taken into this film, especially after this movie gained popularity in France after World War II. And 
after these six days at least, it was then considered, if not the best, then one of the greatest movies of all time. It happened relatively quickly and indeed during the lifetime of Orson Welles. He was actually considered as some kind of a protege already at the age of 23 or so, just based on his skills in theater. Yeah, the story behind Citizen Kane's re-releases is something that shows you the dangers of getting into blows with a newspaper mogul at the time or during the golden time of print media newspapers. And he is the kind of the father figure, I guess, along with Pulitzer, who created the Yellow Press. So in that sense, we can give all the crap to William Randolph Hearst. I really wouldn't care either way. So his greatest contribution was printing basically manipulated stories, politically manipulated stories, outright lies, the father figure of the modern day press. Yeah, the yellow papers. Yeah. So in that sense, yeah, just put him under the bus. Yeah, it's it's something that you most definitely can and should do since since the person in question is long since dead and can be here to defend himself. Absolutely. Absolutely. That that is for what film podcasting basically is. Yeah, it's one of my strengths in this podcast. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's one of my strengths as a human being. <laughs> he was a bad money manager, a bit like the character Kane. Most of his assets were liquidated in the late 1930s, but somehow he kept on keeping the newspapers and magazines that he so dearly loved. There's a lot of parallels that you can draw with Hearst and Kane. There is. Uh, to a point, was going to, to actually give some credit to Hearst. In a way, I can understand why Hearst was so pissed off, especially taking into note that Mankiewicz was doing the original screenplay. So in Hearst's point of view, I kind of can see the notion that this felt like a hit job against him. But still, I also am not on side of Hearst when it comes to the lengths where he went to in order to prevent the film from being screened and the whole publication-wide ban towards the film. Yeah, you can also actually find parallels very much with Hearst and Wells. And, well, this was, I believe, one of the reasons why Wells was playing the character of Kane. Because, at least what I could see quite straight away, is that they have incredibly insane spending habits... They are probably not so good with math as they spent fortunes on their projects and especially Wells had plenty of projects that he never finished but he kept pouring money into this and he was able to kind of have most of the control in these pictures because he was producing them by himself completely at least around the 70s when he was working on the other side of the wind and all that. So these were not very much moving anywhere. So easy for me to see why Clint Eastwood and Ed Al would not join his projects, seeing what kind of a train wreck he was, really. 
Yeah, well, uh, throughout his film career, he was a big go or big go home type of guy. Yeah. And even though the notion does stand that it was bad business making, a lot of poor choices and Wells's downfall was maybe pretty much his own doing. Depends a little bit on which source you believe on this matter. But I still always admire Wells for his attitude, for the fact that he was willing to go go to such limits for his films. He was willing to pour so much money into making them, and he was unwilling to compromise. One thing that could be said to be quite exceptional with Citizen Kane, even to this day, is the fact that he did have such a huge, basically totalitarian control of that movie. So he was able to do very much the movie that he wanted to do. So this was without studio interference in the final product, which is kind of rare. Which is and which is extremely big gamble in the end. In Citizen Kane, it does work. Since I dread to think what this film would be like had the studio got in between in the making process of the film. But once again, this attitude that does work only if the creator is on par, is good enough to pull this stunt off. With a lesser filmmaker, this could have also been a completely horrible train wreck. Yeah, yeah, it was indeed widely ridiculous, the whole deal with RKO and Orson Welles, this young guy approaching Hollywood, looking like he's basically owning the place. Well, I don't think he meant it as such. He was just Orson Welles and boy with toys. And he came there to try out Hollywood. And there might be some certain benefits indeed to give sometimes somebody the full control of the picture, you know, to get the full artistic merits onto the screen. Sometimes it's worth the risk. RKO definitely thought so, even though they were not trusting him 100%. Because there were some spies at the set sometimes, taking a look that everything was going fine with the whole shooting. But every time there were some spies on the set, Orson Welles would tell everyone to start playing was it volleyball, softball, basketball, baseball, whatever the ball it was. And they would keep playing until the spies would go away. <laughs> now, that is one way to deal with the situation. Yeah. But yeah, I can also sympathize with RKO's fears. Once again, if looking simply on what this could have looked like on a page, simply on its script form, you easily could actually kind of get the idea that you could make Citizen Kane with way less money than actually was used in the overall filming process. Like the story on page is such that it would not automatically demand all the production budget and everything that was eventually built and used. One could almost say that the story of Citizen Kane could have been told simply on a stage play. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you know, Seeing this story and then hearing how much Wells is actually putting money into making it, you know, I can believe that that actually raised some eyebrows. 
Oh, certainly. Young filmmaker having full control, doing all these unorthodox filming techniques, although he did have a very experienced cinematographer, Greg Toland. So what was quite astonishing for Orson Welles as well was that Greg Toland actually came to Orson Welles' office just to inform him that he wants to be at the service of Orson Welles. He wants to be used by Orson Welles. He wanted to have somebody who is kind of inexperienced, new in Hollywood, to get a fresh perspective on his working. And that's what he definitely got. I think they both learned a lot from themselves. Maybe, maybe. The judge is somewhat on the side when it comes to Wells himself, how much he learned about himself. It kind of goes, like like I said previously, it goes with on what story about Wells you actually believe in. There are some stories that present Wells as this revolutionary imaginarian who kind of comes up with these great ideas and is completely devoted to his art. And then there are the other stories which paint Wells in extremely negative light, telling you how almost downright calling him a fascist himself on a virtue on how he acted on the set and yeah how he worked with other people yeah there were comments from people who work with him that he could be having this kind of a dictatorial moments where he would get everyone together and then just shout and blast at everybody that everything was going badly and you should do this, you should do this. And that it was very hard to approach him when he was in that type of mood. But apparently Mankiewicz was one that was able to approach him during those times. Unfortunately, (laughs) after this project finished, Mankiewicz also started, in addition to already hating Hearst, also started hating Wells until his dying breath because of this little problem with the screenplay credit in this film, and perhaps some other issues that we are not aware. With Wells is the sorry fact that in the end, Wells was extremely good in alienating people around and close to him. Which would explain why all the top-line actors often turned him down in the later years. And also, which has been offered as an explanation on why the attitude of Hollywood itself turned so much against Wells in the end. That curse of alienating people and also the rumors of Wells being a narcissist. Those are kind of the two key elements that often are brought up why Wells was kind of a push to the sidelines of Hollywood. Well, it could be also read as narcissist. Or just the fact that in this business, you just have to be quite heartless to make the project happen. Especially if you're a passionate director who is who has perfectionist values. You just have to kind of act like a narcissist, even if you may not exactly be. And Wells was nothing if not passionate about his project and extremely driven. We haven't talked about who the hell is Orson Welles exactly, like where did he come from? Well, 
This is a guy who was born in St. Joseph, Missouri. Also, in like in the case of Hearst, these parents of Orson Welles were quite affluent already. Orson Welles grew up in Chicago, Illinois. He's remembered as an actor, director, writer, producer. He actually started from the theater. And uh, later on, he became known for the radio, and especially the radio adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel War of the Worlds. It's quite useful to note in this podcast because this was the well-known show that caused panic, at least allegedly, among a lot of listeners who thought that an E.T. attack was happening for real in the streets. And this statement about this strong of an effect have been challenged in contemporary times. But yeah, there were people who were horrified and took it for real. And instead of destroying Orson Welles' career, it actually skyrocketed his career. And he started turning crazy money out of this. I believe uh, at the time it must have been live radio plays. And from there on, he little by little started to get into Hollywood. He was actually not very passionate to go into Hollywood. He was given a lot of offers for at least three years. And then finally in 1939 he signed a deal with RKO about Citizen Kane. There was also this all-black cast called Voodoo Macbeth stage play, which he produced with his radio earnings. And he used to do that a lot. He earned a lot of money from radio, but he poured all that money into his stage play, which he was always passionate about. And this play, Voodoo Macbeth, got rave reviews, and this is when the Orson Welles hype train started to get totally out of proportions. Around when he was only 20 years old, he was kind of called hailed as the protege. Yeah, and he was also considered to be somewhat of a genius throughout his entire career. Even even though much of his fame has come later on, but still, you know, even back on his day, Wells was a force to be reckoned with. Yep. And to add to the Hearst's disgust towards Citizen Kane, one of the major reasons for that was him assuming that the character of Susan Alexander Kane, Mrs. Kane, that she would be based on Marion Davies, which was like a longtime partner of Hearst. Once again, an easy mistake to make if you would believe that Citizen Kane would be a hit piece against you personally. But I would totally see why he would see that. It's kind of amazing that Orson Welles always denied the linkage between the two. But when you think about Marion Davies, there was reports that she might have felt that she was always in the shadow of Hearst. Like Hearst was pouring money into Davies so that she would kind of have like a career, but that she would not have probably had a career at all if Hearst had not always been pouring money and if he would not have kept supporting Marion Davis. Yeah, that it is. It's the problem kind of covering these personalities is the fact that back in the day there was a lot of rumors going around of Wells, of Davies, of Hearst and a lot of those rumors is something that you kind of can't say that much 
anymore on this day. Like we lack too much evidence, too much knowledge about what went down back in the days to actually piece together the whole truth behind the legends. Like for example, when it comes to Hearst, there was the rumor that Hearst would have, for example, shot the film producer Thomas Inse back in the 1920s on a virtue of, if I understood this correctly, coming to believe that Davis was having too close of a relationship with Charlie Chaplin and then Hearst would have mixed Inse with Chaplin and accidentally killed Inse. And like this is part of one of those rumors. At least I haven't heard that there would be any evidence to support these rumors. But this is the wall that today we, you and me, come up against. We hear these stories of something that might have actually happened back in the day, but then there is no evidence. And you kind of have to walk through all the speculation, all the theories, all the rumors, when you try to piece together the complete picture of who these persons were back in the day. It's a task that I, for one, can't pull off. I don't have the funding nor the resources to study any of the persons that deeply. And I would almost make the argument that piecing together the whole truth and getting the whole picture on who these guys were is completely impossible to do nowadays. Yeah, a lot of hearsay during those times. Too much reliance on on hearsay and some very few sources but also there when it comes to this podcast you know we're still running a weekly podcast so we cannot jump that deep into the history especially knowing that we are actually situated in a completely wrong goddamn country to approach the golden age of hollywood and its rumors all right well we have gone now through about an hour of this pure history, which I think is a good idea still, because there is a lot of it, and you need to understand a little bit of the background to actually enjoy this movie. You, I would almost make the case, you have to understand, well, depends on on what level, because part of why Citizen Kane is considered so revolutionary as a film comes from the attitude and the reviews the film got back on its day. And so that is movie magic that is lost on today's audiences, the two of us included. Yeah, there are some questions, some points that we could kind of tackle later on related to this generational divide. As I said to Henrik previously, before we hit the recording button, I would say that this is roughly 50% of something that was current at that day and age and 50% of something that will be valid, let's say, forever. Something that appeals to everybody any day. It is a timeless classic. I'm always willing to give the movie that much. But I would say that no one watching this film today will ever get the actual experience that this film hold back on the day when it was originally released. Like you said, maybe it is 50% that is forever lost to this generation gap that now permeates between us as film consumers 
and with the release date of this movie. Could be even less than that, because the appeal of this movie, at least in the technical sense, was very much a thing for the snobs to enjoy. People who understand cinema, people who understood cinema. The general movie-going audiences, I wonder if they even paid much of an attention to the use of these new techniques, or not necessarily even new techniques, but techniques that had not been seen in Hollywood probably so much before. Some techniques had been seen previously in Hollywood, but this is kind of the great first amalgamation symbiosis of all these different techniques coming together and playing a major part, especially this deep focus technique that is used like almost all the time in this film, which in like understandable language is the technique of basically having somebody in the foreground, the subject, and then having something happening in the background as well that is important to the story. And also to keep the background as much in focus as is the foreground. It could be really hard to say if the general audiences ever understand the revolutionary techniques in the film. Yeah. I, of course, would love to say that Yeah, yeah, of course they did. I mean, it was in front of their eyes on a big screen. Sure, they know that it, but at the same time, I myself have been a snob for so many goddamn years that to me, the reality is kind of a blurred already. Well, it's easy to see something different in this film because they use this deep focus especially so much that you have a like a different perception of space than in your average movie around that time, sure. But I think for the general audiences, the biggest appeal of this film was definitely the topicality at that time, because Hearst was creating newspapers and magazines for the general audiences. These people were reading this crap, and then they came to the theater to see kind of a, like a, a story about their great hero. That's what drew the audiences. That's my take. And the name Wells, yes. Most likely, yeah. I would also point a finger towards the overall production values of the film. Kind of the size of the sets being used here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. or, well, here we get to the technical aspects as well, because there's some really, actually very nice use of matte painting composited with the film. Oh god, yeah, the map paintings on this film. <laughs> yeah, wow, wow. Like, this is the kind of effect that you would expect from, you know, digital composition of today. But to see it in 1941, it, I'm not even sure how much of this map painting was used generally in 40s, 50s, 60s to that extent that was used so nicely in this film. Maybe the most revolutionary part of this film. Maybe. At least on sense how seamlessly the paintings are connected with actual film footage. Yeah, I didn't always notice. Didn't always notice. Sometimes it didn't even even cross my mind that you could have like a billboard or neon signs that would be composited. But yeah, of course it makes sense. I, I have to confess that I typically when watching Kane, I usually do not notice paintings. The only place where part of the film where I really 
really kind of make the connection that that is a Mace painting is on the opening newsreel footage showing Xanadu. But outside of that, you know, the illusion just, yeah. it, it just completely fools me here. Yeah. And I'm someone who actually considers himself to be a film buff, so. <laughs> All right, scene by scene. Well, the first note I have is about the Bengali tiger sign and the apes. There was an analysis that pointed out that this is illustrating the general neglect around this property without saying a word. And then it moves to the castle, or Xanadu, where the character Kane is having his last breaths and saying the cinematic history word, Rosebud, while he's dropping the snow globe. And that's the movie. To find out what it means, Rosebud. Yeah, right after that, the newsreel, which pretty much spoils you the entire film on plot point-wise. And that's a nice storytelling technique right there, because I was actually thinking that I'm following kind of the film here, that this is not like a newsreel, but uh, a few minutes later we realized that this is a newsreel created by a newspaper company. Yeah, the way how the narrative shifts here is really quite nice and quite ingenious on its own right. Yeah. They, they achieve a hell of a lot of things and they transition extremely well from one situation to the next from Kane's death to the newsreel to the newsroom the newsreel very nicely points out the basic plot points that you are going to see throughout the film kind of giving you the liberty to not pay so much attention on the specific plot point like for example Kane's two divorces since they don't come as a new information as they happened on the film since they are already given to you on the newsreel. And instead you can just, you can save your focus on the cane as a person on those moments. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of information in just a few minutes about this one person. On the first viewing I was sure that I would have to just kind of understand all of this information right off the gate, but yeah, it's being repeated as we go on. There's some incredibly nice techniques in this film, especially the camera that goes through the, I believe, quite obviously has to be a miniature version of the restaurant El Rancho rooftop and the neon sign. And the camera goes kind of through the neon sign and next to the window. And then it cross cuts to the restaurant and lowers the camera. And that's, that's really nice work. I was not expecting that when I first watched this and I was really impressed with that that's something that you don't quite often see in so old films yeah it has this dark kind of a mystery element on how the scene transitions it's something that you typically would be expecting from a film noir or for example a detective film and that's what the main modern day character the news reporter kind of a, in the end ends up being he's kind of a detective who goes through all these people trying to find the truth and the answer to the question presented at the beginning of the film what is rosebud yeah do you have a clear understanding who exactly and why exactly is the character of kane taken from home i understand that 
he is going to be now protected against the possibly abusive father and to follow a better life perhaps. Well, we know that this rich guy is now going to take care of Cain. And this is being done because the family, the parents of Cain, had something to do with this rich person. And now is this some kind of a payback to take care of the child? I'm a little bit confused on that. They find a possible gold mine underneath the property of the boarding house where Cain and his parents live. And Thatcher wants to get the gold mine to his hands and this whole taking care of Cain and raising him and providing him with a future with better resources than his parents can give you is part of the deal. Right. And that's a great scene when we see the young Cain taken from his house. There's again this deep focus shot where you see all the characters and the Cain is kind of the centerpiece of that shot. Throwing snowballs outside. You see him in the background. It's a great shot. It is. Uh, I also love the tracking shot. Yep. Following the three adult characters here, when they leave the window and walk around the table. Yeah, such a pleasure to look at, yeah. It is. And it is technically... Once again, this was one of the aspects where this was technically ahead of its time in the sense of how it was shot. Not the tracking shot as a technique, but the complexity of the shot. The fact that they had to kind of divide the table to get the camera moved through it. Yeah, and the actor playing the mother, Agnes Moorhead, I think she's delivering a pretty stellar performance. Especially at the moment when she's delivering the line, like, I've got his trunk all packed. I've had it packed for a week now. I liked it, and I can also already mention that her performance alongside Orson Welles might be my favorite performances out of this film. But many great performances here. Not a bad performance to be seen. A rare picture in that sense. Yeah. With Morehead really knocking it out of the park here, there is the sense with her that at first when you see her and when they are talking about the deal of Thatcher taking Kane under his care, at first Morehead kind of sells the performance as this code calculative a businesswoman, and you kind of get the feeling that she's simply selling Kane off for some undisclosed reason. And only at the part when she makes the notion towards her husband that that's exactly why I'm sending him away. And that kind of is the moment that turns the whole scene around and makes you realize that it's actually a caring and protective act from her. To send Cain, A, send Cain away from his father and to send Cain to something that she considers to be a better future. Yeah, it's like uh, watching like the painting. After the reporter is, has roasted the ex-wife, the reporter heads to Philadelphia to Thatcher Library to see the diary, which might give some clues about the history of Cain. And this is, uh, again, very beautifully lit place. There's just one key light coming to the table where the reporter is going to read the diary. 
here we already also see some utilizing of the so-called chiaroscuro lighting, where you kind of emphasize the lighting of certain parts of your body, for example. You make a stark contrast against other body parts. It's called the same technique in paintings. But of course, today we see it everywhere. Well, we see and we don't see. We do see the same technique being pulled off, but not to the same effect. In my opinion, there is a level that was lost in the film. When the film itself left the black and white days and finally got the colors. Yeah, this could be said that it works the best with black and white. It does. It it, it kind of highlights the white areas more, since the black areas can become completely engulfed by shadows and dim lighting. There is some scenes in Citizen Kane also, where the room is extremely dark, and the character in the picture is wearing entirely black, and at some point it gives you the illusion, since the clothes and the dark background, they kind of combine together completely, and it gives you the impression that most of the character is actually being swallowed by the shadows in the room. And his head and, for example, a right arm are just kind of a floating amidst the blackness. Then again, with color, the effect is still strong. And I think it works fine because the human eye is still looking for you know, the focus of light as what you pay attention to. And the color might become as the second one, but lighting is the key. I would almost make the case that while I'm not arguing with your point about lighting, and I do note that the lighting techniques are what actually create the effect also in the black and white films, I, I would almost make the counter argument that even though you can have technically the same effect, the effect is greater on a black and white film. Uh, no argument there. I think we could use several different terms for this. It doesn't have to be chiaroscuro. Maybe it can be just be said to be a high contrast lighting. Or, well, it can be a soft light or hard light. Chiaroscuro. It's a nightmare to pronounce. Oh, yeah. Anyway, another notable scene that comes to mind is when Orson Welles, when... Kane is walking towards the big windows in the office. He's in like the centerpiece of the image. He walks towards the windows. We can see the skyscrapers and the buildings out in, in the window. There's already been like a, probably billions of analysis about this, of course, that this means this and that thing. Well, it could be argued, I guess, quite easily that... He is going to that window to give people the effect that he is perhaps not under control of the situation because he is looking minuscule in comparison to the huge windows and the huge space that he is occupying. At first he looks huge and he moves away and we get the sense of the vastness of the space. For me it's kind of pulling it a little bit too far that this would be necessarily making a reference 
to this that he is in loss of control when he's going to the window and being small. I think it's just Orson Welles playing with, you know, depth and perception. I don't think it has to be anything else, something that looks great. I don't know. I always took this with that added meaning. Okay. Of course, this is Orson Welles playing around with depth and camera techniques, but this is also the point where Kane's foster father, Thatcher, has kind of finally had it with Kane's shit, and Kane continuously picking up fights with Thatcher, and also the point where Kane has landed on some rough times. So to me, this showcases Kane shrinking as his businesses are swindling due to the economic collapse that is happening in the background. Yeah, it can be definitely seen that way, that he is like this minuscule thing juxtaposed with the huge buildings and making the point that he is just a human, just a small dot in this vast space. The film Carver does repeatedly this comparison between Kane and the background on the scenes where Kane kind of loses the fight or when Kane is knocked back a notch from what he was trying to achieve. I mean, in spirit, this scene, Kane walking towards the window in the office, it has a lot of the same spirit that, for example, has later on in the movie, it's a scene where Kane loses the election or when Kane is being threatened by Getty and Kane races after Getty to the staircase. These downbeat moments, the moments when Kane gets hit. It is shown in those moments very much that the background kind of seems larger than Kane himself. Yeah, then there is again a kind of a different technique in the end when Mrs. and Mr. Kane are in the hall of Xanadu and Mrs. Kane is playing the jigsaw puzzle and goes next to the fireplace and Kane is sitting in a distance in the chair and we get this kind of a sense of coldness between the two just by the way they are juxtaposed in the frame both of them very far away from each other physically and emotionally and yeah most definitely it is done for a reason and it makes the whole scene feel colder when they are shot from a distance. It does and it does make Kane look considerably smaller. Oh yeah, yeah. On those times when things just don't go like Kane himself would have wanted. Yeah, good point. It's a good line. I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. There is kind of a breaking of the fourth wall moment a bit in this scene when he is staring straight into the camera. And in that note, there is also a second scene, which I like even more, that does the exact same stunt. It's when Kane is, in the end, finding the newspaper, and he writes the first editorial, which states the values of the paper and his friend Leland asked to have the original version of the editorial to himself <laughs> and he gets it and then Leland looks at camera and just states that 
he has a feeling that that original version might come important someday. And then you actually see the exact same piece of paper playing quite a big part in the film later on. Once they have separated their ways and Leland feels being betrayed by Kane. Also an interesting note by, is it the chairman? With this line, well, it's no trick to make a lot of money if all you want is to make a lot of money. But there are surprisingly a lot of these fourth wall breaks in Citizen Kane. Well, then Kane takes the control of the office of this guy. The completely important former owner or head of the newspaper. And starts to religiously take control and over and manipulate the newspaper to his liking, making the readership to the hundreds of thousands. And turning the whole paper into a yellow newspaper. And actually, quite soon after that, maybe starts printing fake news. Absolutely. And during this takeover of the office, there is this quite interesting lighting. And you see this in a quite a few scenes where basically the main player is in the shadow of the lighting. And for the life of me, I simply cannot understand this technique because, well, first of all, this character Kane is already established. We have seen his face. Why is he put into the shadow lighting of this frame? I mean, this feels like something very experimental. doesn't feel like it has a very good point. When you look at it in 2019, it doesn't really give any mysticity to the character, in my opinion. I think rather a pointless choice. I'm not sure if they were trying to imply visually here that Kane is this controlling, shadowy figure. <laughs> that in the end, Kane, through his newspaper, he tries to be this shadowy public opinion puppet master. And he does succeed on it, on that to an extent. So that might be something that they are aiming for here. Kane as a puppet master. But yeah, I'm not sure. It just might be me reading too much into a lighting in one scene. Maybe just as you suggested. Just experimental film techniques. Yeah, I, I kind of think so. Because this is used in a variety of scenes. There's this scene where... After the newsreel completes, they are in the dark room in the news competing newspaper office and there's just two main lights coming facing them and the guy who is speaking, giving the instructions to the reporter, he is kept mostly in shadow as well. But yeah, and now I understand it of course in the sense that it's this Kane character and the competing newspaper lead. They are both kept in the same light shadowy figures. So in that sense, it makes sense in its universe, but I don't know if it's necessary. There's also this party kind of pre-waging a war against Spain in the newspapers type of party, I believe, during which there are these dancing girls and just something that I noticed also watching this movie for the first time. On the right side you have in the front row, in the very front this one dancing girl and at one point she's completely out of her choreography and you can see her getting really awkward about herself and then 
gaining posture again. Then apparently this was groundbreaking because of it shows ceilings. <laughs> so we don't have always still lightings in the ceilings. So they are arranged in more varied ways, in a modern cinematic ways. So we get, I guess, a heightened sense of surroundings when we also can see the ceiling. So yeah, it doesn't look like a TV soap opera. Well, it's on point, you know, one of those filmmaking techniques that have kind of lost its marvel on the modern times. Yeah, not sure if the main point was to get to show the ceiling in all its glory, but more to kind of having the control of being able to do way more interesting shots, for example, from the low angle, which they utilized a lot here. And they also did drill a big hole to the floor to get the camera to a position where they could get the ideal shot for them. So they did take the full advantage of that idea in this film. It is one of the moments where versus background on stage kind of uh, starts to show up. Big sets, big scenes, a lot of people, kind of this grandiose approach on what you show, showing the spectacle on screen. And very long shots. Yeah, the shot takes its time. Long shots, long performances. We have a lot of time to kind of enjoy the scenery, the set, all what is happening there, the the fireplace, the paintings, and all the props in these quite impressive sets. So you don't get the crazy amount of close-ups all the time. No, the camera quite often leaves you space to breathe. Yep. If there's one character that is kind of unimpressive for me in this movie is the Mr. Leland character in the memorial, Huntington Memorial Hospital. Somehow, I'm not very impressed by his storytelling. I, this is one of the moments where it gets a little snoozy for me. Not a big problem, but not a fan of these moments. I, for some reason, quite loved Leland throughout the film. I don't know exactly why. It, it may be the fact that Leland is the male character in the film that most notably becomes disillusioned by Kane as the story progresses and ends up going most against Kane. Or then it might also be just that laser swagger that the old Mr. Leland has when he's first introduced to the audience and is first time giving his account to the reporter. And I sure as fuck do love his liked good cigars. I'm also quite impressed by the makeup artistry here. In Kane's face, as we see him age, maybe not the final makeup when he's around 70 years of age, but you know, this kind of a, let's say, middle-aged Kane looks believable. And the makeup artist was not somebody who was very experienced with this type of work. So, great job. The inexperience is maybe something that does show a little with the characters of Kane and Leland when they are shown at the twilight years of their lives. Did you, by the way, get a feeling of overacting, the typical overacting of classical theater actors? Because 
this is where Wells is getting his theater buddies to this movie. This is like something like 90% of just his friends from the theater and him also trying to give them some kind of a career, which many of them did get in the cinema after this one. Did you have a problem with overacting? Surprisingly not, even though I was expecting to have a problem with the actors here. Same here. Citizen Kane is noted for the fact that it was a transitionary work for Wells from the stage to movies. And like you pointed out, Wells did want to use this opportunity to kind of give that chance to a lot of his friends from the theater world as well and ask a lot of his friends to take roles in Citizen Kane so that they too could kind of transition into film with Wells. I could definitely see how Orson Welles could have easily been able to kind of update the dinosauric Jurassic Hollywood system, it seems, because apparently Hollywood did not pay attention enough to the sound in the same way as they did pay attention to the images. It was all about the images, apparently. But nobody was understanding before Wells that you should also get the audio landscape to support your video. And that's what we get here, the understanding of the audio as well, because Orson Welles is coming from the radio background. And the soundtrack of this film is, for its time, quite complex, with several types of sounds that they had tried to fit in with the image to see what would work the best and elements on top of each other, stuff like that. And they do use the soundtrack as a one form of narrator or storyteller in certain parts of the film, maybe most notably during the picnic scene at the close of the ending of the film. Yeah, and this movie is scored by Bernard Herrmann, the same guy who, for example, did Psycho, he has done the Taxi Driver soundtrack, he has done Vertigo, so a true genius, really, and at least for this movie, he really did get enough time to really work on the soundtrack, because, well, you can definitely hear it in the movies from this era, time and time again, is that the soundtrack doesn't always exactly fit the film. It could be just some random cues all over the place, not very much paid attention to. And arguably also because the people had very limited time to make that goddamn soundtrack. Could be like two or three weeks of time that they were allocating for soundtrack work. And in this case, Bernard Herrmann had 12 weeks. And not only this, Orson Welles seemed to also understand the importance of rehearsing. (laughs) Believe it or not, before this, it seems rehearsals was something of an alien concept for Hollywood. So he's seen to be the inventor of film rehearsals. (laughs) So it was uncommon or non-existent practice until Welles himself realized that this works the best if we give the actors the time to get the best out of their performance before filming you know feels like common sense that's what people do in the theater as well so why not in the films but okay actors do give better performances when you give them the opportunity to rehearse their roles (laughs) before shooting who could have actually thought that that kind of a crazy idea would ever work yeah 
How out of reality was this institution at the time? God. It's surprising that Hollywood is considered and did manage to make itself such of an institution, even though in many ways the way how it approached its own business was extremely backwards back in the day. Have you also paid attention to this little fact that back in these days, people were kind of passionate to ridicule other people, put other people in bad light, or that people would gossip about other people a lot. And a lot of stories about other people were based on just bullshit. And it was okay. It was apparently okay. People didn't seem to pay much of an attention. For example, here, the RKO and Wells deal was already ridiculed. Okay, it was groundbreaking, it was different, but it was just ridiculed even before the freaking film was out. Consider that today. Would you go outright and ridicule people based on that in press? I I would say that that's something that does happen extremely a lot even today. I would argue that people have learned the lessons from that to an extent. That that will bite you in the ass, especially in the internet era, because you have to face the consequences. I have entirely different take on the whole subject. I would counter-argue that people have learned absolutely nothing of those business practices of those times. Just like, as I most likely am trying to point out later on, this episode have learned absolutely nothing of the movie Citizen Kane. Okay. Like, if there is something that we humans as a race are completely incapable and extremely hesitant to do, it's learning from our past mistakes. Okay. Your comment can be as valid as mine, I guess, because hard to give like solid proof for something like this. Who knows? Maybe this is one of those never-ending battles where around which we end up finding ourselves even in the later episodes. Never-ending, you say? Well... When are we going to review never-ending story? Well, maybe never, because the episode would be (laughs) never-ending. Jesus Jesus Christ. I'm telling you that the humor in this podcast... God damn, 10 out of 10. (laughs) Yeah, I apologize. Uh, it's been a long day. <laughs> it has been. This is it again. <laughs> right after Apocalypse Now, so, so so to our audiences, please have patience with us. In real life, we managed to have like a two and a half weeks of a break or so. I don't know if that was very useful, though. <laughs> it was. <laughs> There are times when this podcast hosting actually feels like a real work and not a hobby. (laughs) (laughs) What do you expect? The movie that is titled The Greatest Movie Ever Made. There's like endless amount of material. That it is. Dark Defense, usually we actually take a hell of a lot more time to prepare before the recordings. But yeah, back to the film, the next kind of where we find Kane is, I guess it's the enormously famous 
and impressive scene of Kane now when he gives the speech and he's running for the governor. And yeah, this is also quite phenomenal filmmaking. I, I, w- I would say major points for Kane as a character is here he's already started to run into trouble with his first wife and has started his political ambitions before this scene by outright attacking the president himself through his newspaper, which causes Kane some considerable marital problems. But now at this point, he himself, he has already kind of made it clear that what the newspaper is to him and what this yellow journalism to which Kane himself drove the newspaper is to Kane, it's a kind of a hitting piece. It's a club that Kane can use to hit his enemies as he seems fit. And apparently he seems fit quite how the mood swings to him. After that, there is the rise of Kane as a politician himself. And I don't know if this is Kane's ambitions and Kane's dreams when it comes to himself on their fullest. If nothing else, you know, since we already drew at the beginning of episode we threw Trump presidency into the mix, or we drew Trump into the mix of the film. You do actually notice here also Kane kind of writing his name everywhere, extremely big letters, and this bringing himself up image-wise. He's deliberately building to himself extremely big and extremely powerful image, downright to the K sign pin on his tie. Yeah, I haven't looked at it from this angle. I've just been looking at the wonderful cinematography once again and the perhaps the most iconic and most rememberable shot from this movie when the Kane poster is in the background and Kane is standing behind the speaker's box giving the speech and waving his hand into the air. That's quite legendary. It is. It's one of the most borrowed images from the film. But yeah, when it comes to Trump, well, I can see what you're doing there. These two people are hungry for power, whatever it takes. Regardless of anything else, it doesn't matter what they are. They are both the messengers of nonsense. Yeah, they are both using populist techniques here. Yeah. Kate originally threw his newspaper and now giving this almost... Trump-like speech, like there is a lot of comparisons to be found on the images and the video footage of the Trump rallies, on the crowds, on the sets, even on how Kane here speaks, kind of giving these strong truths that play extremely well with the emotions of his audiences, using sentences like Jim Gettys has something less than a chance and promising to, when he gets into the power, promising to bring Getty to jail. And yeah. it's so weird looking at these scenes today after fake news, after lock her up and all this rally craziness that did happen. I wonder if these were like popular techniques for Democrats also at the time. 
And uh, Orson Welles himself was a lifelong Democrat. So I don't know. It's hard to say. Firstly, because I sure as fuck don't know how the political campaigning did work back on those days. No knowledge at all. But also because throughout the film, and I don't know if even Wells did this intentionally, but they give Kane tremendously lot typical characteristics of a fascist or a dictator. Yeah. Like here you have the speech and you have the posters and you have Kane putting his name everywhere and, you know, wearing that K on his tie. But before this scene, there is all that nonsense with the statues. Kane constantly collecting statues and sending them to his friends, also housing them at the offices of the newspaper. And this is kind of something that you actually see, have seen and do see being pulled off by the fascist leaders of both yesterday and today, to a point where actually all this kind of a behavior is considered to be downright one page from a fascist playbook. Yeah, in that sense, kind of timeless classic. It is. Maybe very current now. Maybe. And, you know, it is something that I can't say if Wells knew what he was doing or if he just stumbled into this accidentally. But then again, the film was done before the Pearl Harbor attacks and before the U.S. joined the Second World War. But it was done in a time when you could actually believe that Wells would have seen, for example, Nazi Germany and maybe heard something from Germany. So, in a way, Wells might just have had some kind of a entry point on what a fascist regime could look like. And maybe he took something from, from those images when he created these scenes here on the film. And since fascism hasn't changed really that much throughout the times, they still manage to be extremely relevant even today. Well, definitely the totalitarian aspect of Hearst is one of the elements of this story. Yeah, that it is. It's hard to say, since I never saw Hearst in action. Yeah, once again, one interesting shot is when Kane is rewriting or writing the, finishing the text about the performance, first written by Jedediah, and he says that Jedediah, you're fired, basically. Again, one of those Deep focus shots. I read from somewhere that this is actually a composite. I didn't realize that, but perhaps it is. When you look at the background directly behind Orson Welles, the background is slightly blurred, when again, the right side of the image is not. So maybe that's the giveaway. Kind of odd that it wouldn't need to be a composite, but I guess it was needed here. Could be. I never managed to pick that one up myself when watching this film so yeah you know once again those moments when the movie completely managed to fool me yeah at the last 30 minutes interestingly this movie gives focus and time for mrs kane well this movie of course has to explain why mrs kane gets so frustrated at mr kane and why she has this suicide attempt so in that sense and uh, 
it's easy to draw parallels again with the partner of Hearst, in my opinion. Honestly, she doesn't even sound like a very bad singer, but she's just made out to be the bad singer in this film. She doesn't have maybe the strong opera voice that you would expect. Well, she does get a hell of a lot of training from what is considered in the film to be kind of a industry expert. There is the notion that she did get the best teachers in the scene to help her with her singing. And she does have her coach with her in the performances. So yeah, sure, it does not sound that bad on the film. But at the same time, the film visually makes it perfectly clear that she's been aided throughout basically every performance she's giving. Yeah, indeed. Whatever the case might be, this control of Kane over Mrs. Kane proves to be kind of ephemeral when she tries to kill herself and afterwards makes Kane understand fully that she is tired of being in the shadow of Kane and being told what to do as Mrs. Kane. And even at the end, Kane seems to be completely unable to understand her wishes or her suffering and seems to be only noting his own suffering by Mrs. Kane's own self-removal from his life. The thing with Kane is that, like it's been pointed out by his ex-wife and Leland himself, uh, Kane always was a character that simply pushed his will and his wishes on to others. Kane never actually took the time to ask others what is that they wanted and what they wanted to achieve. Instead, Kane constantly just decides that one-sidedly by himself. Decides that for his colleagues, decides that for his wife, throughout his newspaper and at the campaign work he does, he tries to decide that even for the general public. And because he one-sidedly simply pushes people to act according to his will, especially with his wives and with the character of Susan, who he built the whole opera house simply so that he could date a singer without the quotes. I guess this is the main thing that in the end makes Cain so blind and so incapable on understanding other people's and makes him not to see the harm and hurt he is causing to others. And we have gone all the way this far in this movie to the last sort of 15 minutes of the movie are left at this point and we still have no single clue really hit her to what is Rosebud. But you could argue actually that you could as an audience now think that the Rosebud would be Mrs. Kane. It's something that he had, but does not have anymore. And will never have again. Which is kind of the description of the rosebud, or what the reporters think it would be. Something unattainable? With the rosebud, yeah, there is a running theme, kind of, with basically every character the reporter comes in contact with. They all have a story to tell, and they... Quite obviously, in the end, they want to tell their story. They want to tell their side. 
extremely many of the characters make the notion that they actually know what Rosebud means. As we see in the final shot of the film, they all were completely oblivious on the meaning of Rosebud. Every character throughout the film who makes the notion, yeah, I know what was Rosebud. They all, in the end, are shown not to actually know what Rosebud was. Well, if you ask from Orson Welles, apparently Rosebud was the clitoris of Mr. Hurt's partner. (laughs) So once again, one thing why you could understand that Mr. Hurst might have been a little angry. (laughs) I I, I didn't know that bit of the history. (laughs) It kind of gives a whole new notion for the burning of Rosebud. (laughs) I like the unexpected tone shift when Kane is destroying the room of Mrs. Kane and actually Wells got hurt for real in this scene but yeah then we finally see a lot of these beautiful matte constructions once again and we are finally given the answer what the rosebud is well since everybody has seen this movie most likely that have been listening to us until to this point congrats to you rosebud is the sled of Mr. Kane from the childhood. And the snow globe is kind of his link to this past, to his old home where he was playing with this snow sled. And that's about it. The childhood that kind of was taken away and denied from him. Yeah, Rosebud, which wasn't really much of a central point of this film after all. It's just some kind of a nice little reveal at the end that the audience needs, but the film itself held its ground without dealing with this whole Rosebud subject for extended periods of time and was not a problem. But it does, in the end, give the film kind of a, at the same time, both a sad note, since you finally understand the importance of Rosebud to Kane and understand that longing for childhood and, you know, that motherly love, but at the same time, it kind of plays as a bit of a joke, since the whole newspaper world, newspaper and the reporter have done all this trouble, gone all these lengths, trying to understand, trying to get to know what the Rosebud is or was, and treat the subject of Rosebud as something that would completely open Kane as a character would explain all the questions. If you just get to Rosebud, all the answers will be revealed to you. And then on the final shots, it's actually showed that all it was was just one sledge. Well, the newspaper lead was actually correct all along. It turned out to be something very simple. Yeah, that he was. Though he kind of, I guess, was that by sheer accident. Well, at least the audience was ready to expect something very simple, and they got it. <laughs> well, Henrik, was this film ahead of its time? And how much was it ahead of its time? Some comments say 40 years. Hard question. It's extremely hard question. But it was ahead of its time, all right? Or it was the <laughs> long-needed wake-up call for the old-fashioned mechanics of Hollywood. Well, it's a wake-up call... To Hollywood business-wise, 
I don't know, was it a wake-up call to anyone else in any shape or form? And it's hard to say, in the end, the Citizen Kane, the way I see it, the way I saw it now that I watched it for this episode, during the Lord's year of 2019, with the political climate we are currently, both as worldwide as nationwide, I see extremely a lot of comparisons. Like I already stated, with the Trump administration, but also with this global state of dialogue and global state of politics overall. And it's hard to say if this is a virtue from the film side. Like, did even Orson Welles himself know what he actually was doing when he was shooting Citizen Kane? Or is it all just a happy accident? Or is it just me reading too much into this film? And if he somehow saw warning signs that might come into fruition in future, and if all this is some kind of a half-prophetical guessing work from Wells. But watching the film today, with the way the world at the moment is, in the end, Citizen Kane seems eerily similar to the state of business through How poignant Citizen Kane feels today. Maybe Citizen Kane is more than just a film. Maybe it could have worked as a warning, basically to all of us, where we might end up if we would not find ourselves and would not get a hold of ourselves. And maybe since Trump has made the notion that Citizen Kane is his favorite film of all time, maybe Citizen Kane could even work as a warning side to Trump, where he might himself be ending up, unless he can kind of see the reasoning to change as a person. Like I said, it's it's a weird experience. And it might be, it wholeheartedly might be, that I'm just, you know, being pretentious over here and reading way too much into Citizen Kane, but... Yeah, I think it's a mixture of many things in the soup. This is done around the turn of the tide, the war was raging, the world was changing rapidly. There was the heightened sense and heightened awareness of the world during the war. There was this media mogul. There was the fact that Orson Welles was working tirelessly 16 to 18 hours allegedly on this film every day. And he would risk his own health too, <laughs> falling some stairs and doing part of the production from a wheelchair. I think some of these things are conscious and some of these are just something that happened by freak accident. And the fact that he is bringing his own personal touch since he's coming from not only theater, but also from radio, which I think contributed a hell of a lot for this film. When it comes to vis-a-vis the politics of the time and uh, all of the media mogul association, well, that's clear. But when it comes to Hitler, hmm, can't answer that one. Yeah, it's a tricky one. The one that really bugs my mind here is how closely this movie ties into today's world. Yeah. I mean, Kane as a character, he has... I kind of find and I see 
hell of a lot similarities between Kane and Trump as persons, both at a young age coming into huge wealth, both somehow wanting to show off to their father figures. Kane does it through constantly picking fights and spiting, spiting Thatcher. Trump kind of did the same thing by one-upping his father in the real estate business. His father never managed to get a foothold of Manhattan, which was something that he really would have wanted. Manhattan is now housing Trump Tower, the crown jewel of Donald's own real estate empire. The use of politics, the fake news angle, the divorces, demand of loyalty that is constant. Yeah, so true. Yeah. We are yet to see the like the real downfall of him, but at least Kane's characters still could understand when things were getting awry, but I'm not sure if Trump understands that. I don't know. That moment may come. Yeah, like I said, I see that Citizen Kane, which is the favorite movie of Donald, would work as a word inside <laughs> to Donald himself. <laughs> such irony. Su- yeah. Such irony, yeah. But I also saw that Citizen Kane could have worked as a lesson to us to avoid all these pitfalls, to avoid kind of a personal demagogues. And, you know, by that notion, it would seem that it was given to a kind of a nation and people who were too goddamn headstrong to actually take the hint when it was presented to them. And when it comes to Trump, does he take the message from Citizen Kane? Hopefully, (laughs) although I'm not holding my breath here. (laughs) <laughs> but at the same time, I don't know. Maybe Citizen Kane could also work as a way to us to actually maybe understand Trump as a person. Quick question. Have you seen John Ford's stagecoach from 1939? I have seen it a couple of times. Okay, yeah. Most of that play from TV since my dad is somewhat of a fan of John Wayne. Yeah, so I've understood. So this is the film that was something that Orson Welles studied most extensively before he started his film career, before he started his Citizen Kane project. He watched it a total of 40 times. And I believe every time he would invite a different technician or some department lead to watch the film with him, to give him technical advice and explain the how and the why things were done. And... Just something interesting. It is quite interesting since Stagecoach in many ways is shot pretty differently from Citizen Kane. Yeah. Well, let's address one YouTube comment, shall we? (laughs) Let's not. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, this is most boring movie ever. End quote. Well, apart from leaving out the definite article there, Henrik, is this the most boring movie ever made? Let me answer it this way. I just gave a hell of a long monologue about Citizen Kane (laughs) working as a, hopefully, a lesson to us all, which I ended up doubting we'll ever actually truly get the lesson so that we would not repeat the same pitfalls here that Citizen Kane shows us. My hopes on us actually getting the message just went down by two points. Well, Henrik, is this the greatest movie ever made? That 
That's the hardest question of the night. That is harder question than I ever ought it to be. I had seen Citizen Kane some years ago. I have seen this a few times. There has been some time since my last viewing this episode not with counting. And back then I had the notion that it most definitely is one of the highlights of cinema, but not necessarily the greatest movie ever made. I would not have the answer what is the greatest movie of all time, but I was thinking maybe not Citizen Kane. But then I ended up watching it for this podcast and it's it's hard to say. It's, it's still really hard to say. Simply because watching it now, it was such of a weird experience. Yeah, it's always so hard to look at the old classics and then the How how do you say something is the greatest film ever made? You have to put it against the backdrop of all the movies before it, all the movies after it. But this is magnificent technically, of course. It's innovative, yes. At this point, we have seen these techniques on the silver screen millions of times, of course, because this serves as some kind of a blueprint for everybody who has went to the film school. And I'm not entirely convinced that this kind of a story build-up or this kind of a story, which we have seen also in millions of different incarnations after this, I don't believe this is something that could hold uh, the viewer's interest until the very end for all of us. And for a good reason. I mean, yes, this is technically marvelous, but when you think about some of the scenes, how the movie builds up, I think the movie, the story is still quite simplistic. It is. That it is. It is It is very simplistic story. And very predictable, I should say. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a story of a man rising to wealth, rising to power, having faults that he cannot fix and having a downfall as a result of those faults. It is an age-old story Yeah. on its core. And... When it comes to the cinematic techniques used, they might have been groundbreaking when this one came out, but they are not today. One thing when analyzing Citizen Kane is that we have to acknowledge that we will never get back into the day when this premiered in film theaters. We can never see the film on that perspective that those people had sitting on the theater benches, and this was a brand new thing. This is the fucking generation gap once again. And we have gotten used to, we have seen all of this done so many times. Yeah, you know, a lot of the time I enjoy watching movies without knowing anything beforehand almost about them. So I would not spoil anything or get some kind of preconceived ideas of how this could play out. So not to disappoint myself in any way, not even watching the reviews, (laughs) which is often automatically the kind of way to shut yourself out of even starting the movie because you will have the idea that it would probably suck. Well, that's not the problem with this movie, of course. On the contrary, also, you would actually need to read a lot about this movie and the history around it before you can kind of respect it. I can say it right away. The first time I saw this film, I wasn't completely blown away. And that's only because I haven't read about the history. For example, William Hurst. And now I know. I too wasn't blown away on my first wing. I wasn't even completely blown away 
after I had catch up with some of the history and I kind of understood what was going on behind the scenes of the film. Yeah. But yeah. I was blown away this Thursday when I was watching this film. So maybe Citizen Kane is not the greatest film ever made. It depends entirely how you... Here you have to decide how you're going to determine that. Yeah. Is it the greatest film of all time? Because it was the greatest film of all time at its time? Or do you put it against all the history of movies that we already have on our plate and compare it to that? I I, I mean, I, I think you have to decide Yeah, I, in some way. I always put all the movies back to back against each other when trying to ask these questions. This is also the reason why I hate top lists from the bottom of yeah. my heart and refuse to create them. Yeah. But... So we understand the contributions of this film. We like to watch it. It's an enjoyable movie, all in all. But for me, it's not the greatest movie ever made. At least not anymore. And what the hell is the greatest movie ever made anyway? I don't know the answer. Neither do I. To me, Citizen Kane is, well, once again, coming from 2019, looking at the world as it is, looking at the state of affairs in America, around the world, looking at them in Finland. I would say Citizen Kane is extremely important film to watch. It is something that I believe could teach us so much more, as a both from a political standpoint, but also from set of individuals on a personal level. The problem I have is that I'm extremely sure that the importance of the film I find from it today in the end, is accidental from Wells's part and not intended. So, even though I'm blown away now, I can't say that that maybe is due to Wells himself. It's due to luck and set of events that have taken place during these past few years. You know, saying that Citizen Kane is the greatest movie ever made, I could make the analogy with something like cars and camels. You know, Camels was the greatest transport ever made at its time. Yeah, it's fantastic. But I would still choose the car. <laughs> Most of the time. Unless the terrain is not fit for car. Obviously. Obviously. I was just about to point that out. <laughs> there are moments when I would most definitely go with a camel. <laughs> I would even say that in most cases I would go with a camel. Simply because I hate driving. <laughs> so goddamn much. Do you want to tackle also this one then? What makes people not so eager to find black and white cinema? What makes people not see black and white cinema as so appealing? I guess because the language of cinema has changed so much. The black and white films, they, in the end, however, they work differently compared to modern day movies. And I don't only mean the fact that modern-day movies may be easier to eye and they more easier can hold your attention. Since you have all the colors giving your eyes something to enjoy and you can have explosions and alien invasions and the top end of CGI and the 3D projection and all of this. But also because... For example, dialogue delivery has changed. In many ways, if you, for example, look at old 
film noir classics, the detective tales, those may be extremely hard for you to understand what actually is happening and how the plot is evolving, since it's kind of a colossal combination of different parts. You have to pick a hidden meaning behind a set of dialogue, and you have to remember a, a visual clue that you were given God knows how many minutes ago, and people say something and they mean completely different, and this, the story kind of deconstructs itself this way. And you don't get the explanation necessarily given to you throughout, as you do in today's movies. So I would say a lot of reasons why black and white cinema no longer is sought out and why so many of us would actually rather watch something more modern, watch a Marvel film instead of a black and white classic. Yeah, it's easy to just see black and white as a simple technical limitation. And in this day and age, it's just used as a special effect for flashback purposes or anything such. Yeah, or simply to show your pretentiousness as, <laughs> like Coen Brothers did with Man Who Wasn't There, <laughs> movie which was shot both black and white and in color, <laughs> simply because, why the fuck not? Yeah, well, what do you think about recent attempts like Schindler's List? In a way, it works because the subject matter is so goddamn gray. I I think it works extremely well. However, there is also the notion that in Schindler's List, the black and whiteness of the film is actually used kind of as a circus trick to highlight mm. the girl in red. A bit same way, I would actually say, as Rodriguez in his Sin City films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it... Ah, I have still not even watched them fully. It always kind of irritated me because of this stylistic choice. I, I can recommend you wholeheartedly the first one. Dame to Kill for yeah. maybe better avoid that one. But the original, I think it was such a blast to see it. And then seeing all the amateur attempt versions all over YouTube made from Sin City. I just can't, I can't stomach that pretentious shit. This is exactly the reason why I stay hell away from YouTube most of the time. <laughs> or, or fan products. This and, and the comment section. <laughs> but yeah, there is a certain reason why we have documents like the Second World War in color. Because that was actually a very exciting experience because the colors... <sighs> Made afterwards or not, it brings you closer to those events. And you can make a totally different connection with that era. And there is some a certain distance that is built between the audience and the film when it's in black and white. There it is. I would wholeheartedly recommend black and white classic to all our listeners. <laughs> There's a world of visuality that you just can't get nowadays. And it's worth experiencing. It's still worth experiencing, most definitely. And so is Citizen Kane, to answer the question if I would recommend this film. I would recommend it as well, of course. Not because the critics say so, but we can see why it's an important movie, and why it's actually an enjoyable one, not just something snobby and pretentious. 
actually, I don't see it as snobby and pretentious at all. No. Oh, uh, it's just something new that is being attempted by a fresher. Yeah, I, I think that if you would be looking for snobby and pretentious, you should actually turn your eye towards the film podcasts that cover this film today. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're looking for something snobby and pretentious from the same director, there's this one particular film. The Trial. There's your snobby and pretentious. But it actually succeeds in making this very uncomfortable feeling in the viewer as it's trying. I give it that one. But other than that, be warned, dear listener. Yep, but you know, to say Trial's defense, it is based on Kafka's work, so you should be aware what you are getting yourself into. Yeah. Well, Henrik, do you have your own rosebud? The thing you want but you can never have. I would say better understanding of everything. The ultimate knowledge. This will sound very pretentious and ridiculous from 30-something old person, but the thing that I had but cannot have again is my youth or so-called youth. I could be 23 for all eternity, but with the addition of what Henrik wants. I was actually counting on you saying Sega Dreamcast. <laughs> I have evolved from that stage. <laughs> but the great console. It just turned out that there's more to life than Sega Dreamcast. Well, this movie depicts a rich person in his own little empire. Is this something that you would also pursue in your life? Is this the correct answer to life as how to live it? Do you have to have 61 bedrooms and 59 bathrooms in your house? What is valuable to you? What is the meaning of life, Henrik? To me, it is knowledge. Gathering and containing it, and through this process, trying to better yourself one way or the another. Like Carl Sagan once said, we are no longer at the mercy of a reptile brain, and I've always taken it as a kind of a demand. Since we have evolved from that, we should actually try to use that superior brain to make ourselves and through that virtue, the word a better place. That's so excellent, because now that you mention it, I would pick exactly that one. As kind of a vein it sometimes feels, packing your head full of knowledge and then just dying and throwing it away. But yeah, hopefully it will be useful for the time of year occupying this planet and sharing the knowledge forward. There is a reason why I'm once again doing my umpteenth degree. Oh, God, that's what else I tried to become a master <laughs> on. You know, I would have done exactly the same thing that you're doing. But I just figured money, it's a nice thing. But it definitely makes you dumber if you're doing, doing work as most people do. That is not really giving you more and more skills and knowledge day by day. I don't know. I mean, I'm... I'm not necessarily taking that side. I, I believe that even through your work, you can always still enhance yourself. Since in your job, you learn new skills and you learn to do your job more effectively. And you pick all these things up. Even though I'm a Laos who hides himself in the libraries and behind the bookshelves and academia, I still in no way see myself as a superior to anyone who 
chooses the different road and just goes to work life and dedicates himself to his work. You can learn in both places. You just learn a bit differently and different things, but one does not up the other. Hmm. I would disagree there, but you, of course, learn different things in different scopes in both of these arenas, but I can definitely feel the difference when I'm actually studying, because the purpose is learning every day. But yeah, well, it's been a movie that's been consuming a lot of our time, Henrik. But yeah, we got something together here, all right, once again. The miracles are small in this podcast. (laughs) Well, are you ready to take the ferry to Hong Kong for the next episode? When we are not going to watch that particular movie now, but we are going to watch Chungking Express from Hong Kong. And we are going to be joining with a guest, Mitch Tom. Always happy to have a guest here. Excellent. Happy to take a little break from the eternal classics and movie miracles of the past. And, well... I don't know if we are actually taking a break from it. We're going to take a look at one of the very critically acclaimed directors from Hong Kong, Karvai Wong, and looking forward to that. I still haven't received my copy of the film, so (laughs) we're still trying to figure that one out, if we're going to watch it at all. But uh, sooner than later, dear listeners. I guess I have to dig my copy out of my... Storages. Oh, you do have it. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Huge van. Oh, this has been the Flick Lab, and what an episode. I need to take a big nap at this point, and then continue my monotonous labor in the morning. And do it very next time. Absolutely. Mä en edes koeta tätä etunimeä. And his friend Leland. Ootapas. Ihan hetki. Täytyy varmistaa, oliko se oikea sana. No ei ollut. No vähän...